episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, and Western Los Angeles. Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a safe place for addicts and alcoholics to get treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI, as well as a reputation that's been proven by friends of mine who have been there that they treat their clients like people, which is the best thing of all. They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is crucial when you're kicking the drugs that all of us have taken, heroin or coke or crack or booze or benzos or whatever. And they have amenities you wouldn't believe. Fucking surfing, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, and of course, sound bath meditation. If you're fucked and you're willing to get some help and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly suggest going to Oro. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our great friends at Soberlink. As we all know, addiction is a serious issue that needs to be addressed. Nearly 15 million people in the U.S. have an alcohol use disorder, and that's alcohol only, not other drugs. Only 10% of those people get treatment. This can be attributed to the stigma that surrounds addiction and how people don't want to talk about it. Soberlink supports the no-judgment zone that is dopey and strives to erase the stigma of alcohol addiction. Their remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people to be more accountable in their sobriety. That's over a half a million people, you guys. The Dopey Podcast was started with open and honest conversations about addiction and recovery, and Soberlink encourages this to help rebuild trust and maintain sobriety. We at Dopey have teamed up with Soberlink to create a healthy habits guide for those in recovery. Visit www.soberlink.com dopey to download that healthy habits guide. And if you or someone you know can benefit from accountability for alcohol recovery, you'll also find a forum on that page to sign up for a $50 off promo code exclusive to the Dopey Nation. Let Soberlink help you help your family to stay off of the sauce. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. I know I've talked to you guys about the Sober Buddy app before, and I think you guys should still check it out. 
But what I want to tell you today is that Sober Buddy has just opened up a crowdfunding campaign that allows you a chance to own a piece of the company, which is super cool. You help them raise the money they need and they give you shares. Win-win. You can purchase shares in the regular CF offering and raise capital for future expansion. You can find the link to their campaign on my website, dopeypodcast.com, or on their website, YourSoberBuddy.com. Sober Buddy has already helped over 30,000 people on their sober journey, and this is your chance to help them get their app to out to even more people. So check it out. Give them some love to support a product that helps people achieve sobriety, which is what we at Dopey are all about. And sign up for their app so you can have your own Sober Buddy. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I am with a very special guest. And I am way more happy about the special guest being here than she is about being here. It's got to have been, what, 18 months since you've been on the Dopey Show? It's Linda, my beautiful partner, my fiance. Welcome <laughs> back to the show. Hello, Dopey Nation. How are you, Lynn? I'm okay. What's going on? Um, hanging in. Last week, Linda tested positive for the coronavirus, and it's been a rough run around the house since then. So why don't you give the Dopey Nation an update of your of your status? Um, so New Year's Eve, I took a test. Um, and I was all fucked up before that. I was sure I had COVID. Dave. I injured my foot. Yeah, and I don't know why you're telling people you broke your foot because that wasn't what it was. It was a euphemism for hurting myself. Well, it was an infection in your toe. I mean, let's. That's it wasn't my quite toe. Quite the exaggerated story. But. It was in the ball of my foot. And what did it affect? My my the ball of my foot and my toes. Right. So uh, and Dave took antibiotics for a day and was like running around the house. So anyway, let's just let's clear that. Let's clear that bit of misinformation why don't you explain why how i got it infected he stepped on one of our three-year-old's barrettes and it was open and it punctured his foot i don't know it's like an injury that never happens to anyone but dave <laughs> it was very painful it was horrible it. i still don't understand it but let's get back to you let's uh, get back to you and COVID. so uh dave well dave likes dave want i've never met anybody who wants COVID more than dave I have dreams of um, quarantine. He just, not because, obviously it's not to minimize how horrible the coronavirus is, but Dave loves the the aspect of the isolation for five days. Uh, now it's five days. The that, isolation for five days and just being brought your meals. Uh, and The fucked up thing is when yeah. I had COVID, I didn't get the quarantine dream. No, we didn't, we didn't even like separate from one another because it was still so new. No one knew, like even the, ki the kids were still in school. It was before even there were any rules. But you just had COVID and you enjoyed my yeah, quarantine I got royal, fantasy. I got the royal COVID treatment. Meals in your room, yeah. watching TV around the clock. But the playing. difference, right? But the difference is, I don't like it. I'm very controlling. I'm sort of like the. It's horrible. The mastermind of the house and the kids and the, and so it for me it's hard to be in my room listening to Dave do it. And so I'm constantly like screaming direction from the bedroom and Dave's yelling at me like I'm in charge and it's, it's, yeah, 
It was it, quite the time. It was quite the time. So, <laughs> how are you feeling now, though, Linda? You I look feel, fantastic. Um, COVID, the, so I believe I have the Omicron variant. Okay. I have, have self-diagnosed my my variant. Um, I never had a fever. I never lost my senses. Um, and I've been reading up, obviously, a lot on the Omicron variant, and they they are saying that people often find themselves in a COVID fog, and it's very weird because I know what that means because that's how I've felt for the last week. I feel like I went for a long walk just to get fresh air in my lungs, and I almost got lost, like, going around the block. Like, you feel very disoriented, foggy, confused, Um so I had that, and um, it's it's much better now. But so today, our our Nora, our eleven year old, was like wandering around in circles around the house, and and just seemed very. I kept she was trying to get ready to go sledding, and like couldn't figure out like how to put socks on. Like she was just not herself. And um, so I I I said I said, "How are you feeling? What's going on with you?" I knew she had had like a cold. Um, and we had already tested her to make sure she could, could go back to school after she was five days from me and whatever. And she was like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm in this really weird fog. And I looked at her and I was like, oh, shit. So I tested her and she was positive. So now Nora's positive for COVID and we're separating her for five days for everyone, which seems ridiculous because Dave was just, you know, sharing an ice cream with her last night and she was playing with her other daughter. So anyway, this time is Cray cray. It's impossible to know what to do. Cray cray. Cray cray. And luckily, um, this new variant that seems to be making its way through at least, you know, our town and where we live seems to be um, this Omicron variant, it, which doesn't seem to be too serious. But you still well, have to be the careful. Om- it's the know? Omicron variant is what's going on all over the place. Well, there's now. still the Delta. There's other things, you know, other still, variants are the still Delta circulating, is still lurking around. And, you know, um, and, and then on top of that, we had Dave's, you know, Mark Marin stuff. And yes, I want to make a big, I want to make an in a, a welcome to all the new listeners who might be listening now because of Mark Marin. Oh gosh. So the first, their first, first introduction you. is me talking yeah. about the Omicron. Yeah. You're going to, it's yeah. going to be. Sorry about my accent. You'll get used to it. it well, it, she comes <laughs> on like once every two years. Yeah. So I guess get, it doesn't matter. Get used to it or don't get used to it. If you hate me, no worries. I won't come on again. But I went out to Los Angeles. Don't say that, Lynn. I'm kidding. This is a joke. I went out to Los Angeles and to do the Mark Marin show, which was like crazy fantasy. And it was, uh, a really traumatic experience going to Los Angeles. I think I, I, I never could have imagined that I could have uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but I think I had it from, from my right. time in LA. When I landed there, I was just like full of full-on fear, full-on like crippling fucking fear just from being there. I don't think I was scared of the Marin show as much as it was like the experience of being in Los Angeles by myself again. So that was weird. And then I did the show and I thought it sucked. I just thought like I didn't say the good stuff and I wasn't funny. And well, that's what I was going to say is, um, Dave, ever since Dave got back from the interview, he back from Los Angeles, back from Los Angeles, Um, he was telling me, you know, like 
it was terrible. And he had, like, he said he had almost had like an out of, out of body experience because it's so hardcore. I mean, he's in Mark Maron's garage. And it's when like, did I say I had an out of body experience? You said experience? that you said that you were det- very detached from what was happening because it was surreal and you you couldn't remember a lot. You couldn't remember anything. I don't remember any. When I do a podcast, I'm so in, I'm so on the money in the moment that afterwards it's like a blur every time. This was. This is worse. Almost too, I mean, I was like, well, I, I, I'd been dying for him to come home to like find out, learn everything about it. And he was like, I don't really, re- I can't remember anything. Well, the truth was that when it was over, I was like, <coughs> I didn't talk about the Othello cookie. I didn't talk yeah, about playing killer in high school. I didn't talk about, like Artie. I had, I didn't talk about Artie Lang. There were like five things that I wanted to talk about that I didn't talk about. So in my mind. And then they cut some shit out. I, re- I I was playing it back in my head. They cut some stuff out that I was glad they cut out, like things that I didn't want to be on that show. And mm-hmm. they, they just figured out that it shouldn't be That's on that show. That's cool, right? They're so, like real pros. Yeah. And in the end, we listened to it today, and I thought it was, it was good or yesterday. Right. So it was funny because, you know, a part of the, the, um, a COVID symptom that I had had was be, was like stomach distress, not feeling good. But it was funny because it was like extra bad the morning that the Marin episode came out. And I knew Dave and I were going to sit in the morning and listen to it together. And I also realized that I was really nervous for the episode because he had been telling me it sucks. I blah, blah, blah. I, I can't remember anything. I think I did this and that, you know, it doesn't matter all the stuff, but he was just said it was going to be terrible. And, you know, being on Mark Maron's a big deal. Dave is my partner. So I was your best friend. You're everything. An extension of Would you myself. Say I'm, I'm your everything. I was very worried about this Mark Maron episode. So that sort of compounded how I was feeling. And we sat down at the kitchen table and Dave, and it was so funny because Dave goes, Alexa, play uh, the new WTF. The new, the, new, the new WTF episode. And she goes, she goes, episode 1500, blah, blah, blah. She goes, David Mannheim. And it was so weird. I'm like, Alexa just said your name. <laughs> well, it's also weird because I, I never say you my name. You made it. Alexa knows you. Yeah, but I never say my name here. Like, we always bleeped it. And like, and Marin was like, you don't need to be anonymous. You're not I agree. a, he- you're not a cool. hero. You know? Yeah. And, um, and we listened to the episode and it was good. About 15 minutes in, you could tell it was going to be fine. You know, because the the... Marin was um, enjoying Dave and uh, the chemistry. And I could hear from your voice that you were comfortable. I just think it's interesting that you felt completely detached during the actual interview. Like I knew, I knew, I told you I was comfortable afterwards and I knew that the vibe was right on. I think I was just annoyed that I didn't get to talk about the Othello cookie and playing killer in high school. And like, I thought those stories were going to be like these great. You talked for 90 minutes. Like that was a lot. I know. I know. And, um, it was very, very good. Thank you. Yeah. And I thought it was good too. And the other thing that like, I got there. I was so freaked out. I woke up at like three o'clock in the morning and I, I like drove to our, the apartment that I used to live in out there. I drove to like the methadone clinic that I used to go to because those were the only two places like I knew how to get to in Los Angeles. And I, and I get to the methadone clinic and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like there's like four guys outside, all of them on crutches. And I was just like, I was just like, what am I doing here? And I, and it kind of hit me. I was like, I have nothing to do with this. I mean, dopey is all about 
drugs addiction and dumb shit and methadone and all that. Mm -hmm. But like, I have no business, but I was fucking jacked up with anxiety and I, and I went to a meeting like, that's what I did. And like, I got to the meeting and I was just like, Oh, I think I even mentioned Don Marin. I did mention. Yeah, you did. You told the story. Yeah. But um, I didn't mention that I went to the methadone Because one, one of my LOL moments was when Mark Marin Im- imitated what it sounds like to be on methadone. And I used to work, um, when I worked on 23rd Street in the city, I worked down the street from one of like the biggest methadone clinics. And I remember... I used to go to that methadone folks. clinic. And Do you know the one I'm talking about? It's on. It's not on 23rd Street. It's on... Between 20, second and third or something. Well, the one that I used to go to was on 25th and second yeah and uh and it's like the most nondescript building in manhattan it's, it looks like 1979 and everyone hangs out in uh, madison square park yeah exactly yeah. and and it was funny because when um years ago when you and i started dating and i i was living at the biedermans mm-hmm. uh todd had some kind of heartbreak and he came to my house and he's like i want to get dope and i was like I was like, if you want to get dope, you know, let's let's get dope. I can do it. He goes, you can't do it. And I was like, I can do it. I know I can do it. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, we could just go to my old methadone clinic. And we went. Did you get methadone and Xanax? No, we went to 23rd Street. And so I, you can get heroin at methadone clinic? Yeah. Oh, okay. But just that, not. That's great. Yeah. So it was everyone. Anyway, convenient. It was very convenient. And, and I think we probably got some Xanax too. And that's when one of the first times you broke up with me. Do you remember that? See? had some do you remember that sense of what was going on i I don't i mean there were so many of these stories well that was a a a moment on 23rd street (laughs) and um so like it's a thrill it's always a joy and a thrill to have you on the dopey show thank you i appreciate that do you really appreciate it i do and today our guest is a big deal but like i'm worried that the 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 new marin people aren't gonna think that our incredible guest isn't like flashy enough. So I want to play a clip from next week's show. Oh, okay. To cover up. Yeah. I want to tease. Not cover up to, to make up for them thinking that today's guest is a little too, is he, he would we call him highbrow? Yeah. He's yeah, very highbrow. Yeah, he's very highbrow. And, and it, it's one of Linda's heroes. Linda cued really me into is. this guy. His I name think is. this is the perfect guest to have for new listeners. Should I play the fucking debauched clip from next oh, week's show with, with Andy Dick? Yes. And, and so our guest today is Dr. Gabor Mate, one of Linda's heroes yes. and somebody I've pursued to get on Dopey for years. And somehow I connected with his daughter. I don't remember how it happened, but I connected with his daughter and she made it happen. But before we get to Gabor Mate, here is a clip of next week's episode with uh, Andy Dick. Two friends of mine. Uh, laid out this mount, little mount, mini mountain of cocaine, okay, in in a bathroom with me and my two friends. And I'm like, and I got so drug greedy, I pushed both of them <laughs> to either side of the mountain of cocaine into the wall, and I just snorted the whole pile. And they said, Andy, you. No, that was fentanyl. Oh my god! So doesn't that doesn't it make you wow. want to know what happened? I didn't expect him to say that. <laughs> Don't you want to know what happened? I love Andy Dick. Well, I I cannot wait for you to hear. Just cocaine. Are you just, dying? Are you dying? I, yeah, it? that was quite the tease. 
Yeah, that was the first ever <laughs> tease in the history of Dopey. That's a good tease. Now, um, before we get to Gabor, I also want to say that I started... Oh, no. You still There's recording? a monster at the door. <laughs> Are you when it, we're actually recording in the Dopey studio. How, what do you think about recording in the Dopey studio? I mean, it's hard for me to see it as a studio when it's my, my room that I've been using for garbage. Of. What do you mean? What do you, what well, the, this room was my, has my dresser in it that's now been covered in dopey Equipment. gear. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a junk, like a junkyard because there's garbage everywhere because Dave doesn't believe in, you know, straight tidying up. It looks so like one little corner that is recorded for his uh, Daily Reflections YouTube segments looks really cool. And, and luckily I'm facing that corner, but if I turn around, it's very frightening. Right. That reminds me how he was saying and how he's the YouTube producer. And he was saying that I don't plug YouTube enough on Dopey. So oh, plug, plug. you should check out fucking Dopey YouTube on YouTube. There's daily reflections. There's the ice cream. We're reviewing every Ben and Jerry's flavor. There's other stuff. Yeah. And there's new stuff coming out. New stuff is coming out. Now, before we get to Dr. Mate, also, I'll plug Patreon. Join Dopey Patreon. Dopey Patreon is the greatest thing in the world. There's tons of material constantly going on to Dopey Patreon. Video, music, old shit, Dave works new hard shit. on Patreon. Like, he talks about Patreon a lot during the week. Like, it's definitely not an afterthought because it's... Really? You think so? Yeah, I feel like That's it's... a good plug. I mean, I'm being honest it's something you you're it's on your mind a lot and you put time into it so it's i'm sure i don't know anything about it and i've never i've never watched it is it watching or listening I don't both know. See, I don't even watching know. you have to pay for it but i know that he definitely puts like time enough you guys get, if you want more dopey go to patreon and you will get your money's worth and speaking of getting your money's worth i have started therapy again and I've oh. today I had my second session and I really like it. And I and I and that leads me to this new ad uh, or old ad, just ad leads me to this ad. And it's Dopey is sponsored by BetterHelp um, online therapy. Check out BetterHelp.com slash Dopey podcast. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Dopey listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash DopeyPodcast. Do people need you to spell that out? I'm just wondering. They tell me to spell it out because they think it's better health. Oh, when they hear it, they think it. I'm saying better health. I was always wondering why you spell it out. Have you ever heard me spell it? I think you do that every week, no? Do you listen to the like show? I, no, I feel like I've walked by the studio. And heard me spelling heard out better I'm wondering why you're spelling things for your listeners. But anyway. Continue. That's why. Because health and help sound So it's similar. different. It was funny because after Nora tested uh, positive. For the COVID. I wanted it. Yeah, I know. 
And we've, uh, we've covered that already. But then I tested, and I and Linda was like, "Sorry, Charlie." No, I said to, he go. I said, Dave, listen, because you're completely fine. If we test you and it's positive, you're not all of a sudden going to go hide in a room and like and you got be, to do. Right, but it's I didn't fucked feel up. well. It's like a double stand. What if he I felt, don't feel good? He felt fine. I was like on death's door, and I was I was taking care of the that kids last before, time. That was before COVID even was a thing. That was when, like six years ago. But when do I get to benefit from the so COVID? So Dave goes, it could be... He goes, false it negative. could be psychosomatic, but I'm definitely, I feel a little foggy. I feel foggy he goes, still. I, he goes, I feel the fog. I feel t- a chill. And he <laughs> goes, I want the test. And I said, listen, maybe we shouldn't test you because then you're going to think you should be like sitting in the in the bedroom, not helping and, and participating. And he's like, right, maybe we shouldn't test me. When I, I hurt said, my foot, I only got up through the second Lord of the Rings movie. I said, Dave, if we test you and you're um, positive, nothing changes. And he like, he's like got very upset, gave me this look, and I was like, no, let's just test you, because... Because then you wanted to, 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 to... Why do you call all the shots? Why am I the... Why why don't I get to be in charge of anything? Because when I'm... When I have COVID and, I even, and I'm isolating, I'm still like... like I, you can confirm this. I was... Had, in one hand, I had a giant thing of Clor, uh, Clorox wipes... I'm wearing a mask and I'm still helping. I'm give me still, a, give me a break. I'm, I'm still You're s- fucking texting. <laughs> You're fucking playing the stupid block game and trying to control me all at the same time. And listen, let's right, but say I'm still, I God, leave the door open so I can be like, Dave, Len, make sure Susie no, has you don't, you blah, don't say, blah, blah. You, you don't say Dave. You say Dave. <laughs> no, but hold on. Time out. If God forbid. Oh, God forbid. God willing. I get <laughs> COVID again. Let's just say that happened. Okay. And I'm. Under the weather, yes. In the fog, in the fog, COVID sick. Fog. I'm watching the second half of Lord of the Rings two, uh, the two towers, and then I'm watching the extended three, the Return of the King. So I have some unfortunate news for you. Yes. If you have, when you get COVID, yes. we'll have all already had it, so you don't get shit. What do you, what do you, because you only isolate when you're trying to keep it from the rest of the family. Guess what, buddy? <laughs> when do I we get, we all have it. When so do I get, when do I get the benefits of, of the sickness? Um, I need to come up with a new know. illness. Maybe you will come and create a new variant. I need to, I need a new variant. All right. Enough, <laughs> enough with this, this, and, 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 and Sorry, listen. Sorry, we keep going back to the I don't want to be glib because there's people out there who's no, very I, sick. No, this is not to laugh and make fun at all. And I, and, and I have like some, I am a little nervous right now that, that it's in the house and that Nora has it. And I mean, I, I, so many of our, our family and friends are, are, it's in their families and they're, and they're working through it. So yeah, I don't want it to seem like we're being like. What's the word? Glib? Glib. Glib. Not at all the case, but Dave and I have been, I mean, yeah, this is just, this is just more funny about Dave wanting COVID because that's just a sign of Dave's, uh, sickness. I'm a, I'm a sick person. M- with, what's it with called? A, M-I- SMI, SMI. Severe mental illness. Now enough of this. We have somebody that can actually help with severe mental illness. Oh, Gabor. Dr. Nice. Gabor. Nice transition. Mate. I have with me an amazing man. I'm going to I'm going to make you kind of over the top praised here, doctor. His name is Dr. Gabor Mate. He is an author of many best-selling works. The work that really spoke to me was In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. He also wrote Scattered: How Attention Deficit Disorder Originates and What You Can Know About It, Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. When the body says no, understanding the stress disease connection 
And before we even start, I just want you to know my wife is so obsessed with you that I feel like I know you very well. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. What a great introduction. Thanks. What's happening? How you feel? I'm feeling good because uh, literally two weeks ago, two days and two weeks ago, I finished my next book, which is a labor of 10 years. Aye, and, uh, aye. It was a question of would I finish the book or would the book finish me? And uh, I won, it looks like. <laughs> so that's good. Nice. What is the book? The book is entitled The Myth of Normal, a Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And uh, it, it does have a couple of chapters in addiction. And it basically, I'm saying that this is an abnormal society and that illness, including mental illness, physical illness, addictions, are normal responses to an abnormal culture. Right. That's interesting. When I, when I was at my worst, in the very beginning of my worst, George Bush was president. The world seemed upside down. The war in Iraq was raging. And one of my friends, who was a normie, said, I understand why you're on heroin. That makes sense to me. Yeah. So. Well, it always makes sense. But the, the whole thing about addictions is they always make sense. Like, they're not diseases and they're not bad choices. They're really, if, if I asked you, for example, what did the heroin do for you that you liked in the short term, what would you say? There was something that you got from it, right? It made me not insane I and, and neurotic. It made me relaxed. Okay. I mean, who doesn't want to feel relaxed, you know? And so it's not like the addiction was your primary problem. Your primary problem is that you were too tense, you were too stressed, and probably too traumatized. And so the, uh, the heroin comes along as an attempted short-term solution, which then creates more problems by definition. But it's not like it's a disease. It's, it's your attempt just to feel like a normal human being. That's what any addiction is. You know, I, I really appreciate that take. And I've all, I mean, I've been to so many treatments and I've been around so many people and I'm a member of 12 step and, and the phrase disease of, of addiction and disease of alcoholism is bandied about. It never felt comfortable to me. So I really appreciate your take on it. Well, you know, it, 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 in some ways it looks like a disease, you know, it certainly cause harm it has relapses and remissions you know right uh, i can be treated so it kind of looks like a disease so the disease model isn't totally false but it's far from the truth either because it doesn't originate as a disease but it originates as an attempt as an attempt to soothe oneself when i ask people what does your addiction do for you and i don't i don't just mean heroin but any drug any substance any behavior sex pornography gaming gambling shopping, eating, work, whatever it is, it always does something for a person that that person lacks. Soothing, relaxation, numbing, escape from stress, connection with other people, wow. sense of inner peace. Those are qualities we all want. So what kind of a disease gives you things that you need? Basically, what happens is, is that people are traumatized, they're hurt, they're stressed, their internal life is um, disturbed, they have emotional pain. They're uncomfortable in their own skin, and they turn to something to try and feel normal. And that's what an addiction is. So it's not a disease. It doesn't start off as a disease. It starts off as a desperate attempt to solve a, a life problem. So we don't, your, your great phrase is you don't treat the addiction, you treat the pain. Yeah, really what I'm saying is the first question is not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yeah. So if you go back to your own life, why did you have this? the stress that needed to be soothed? That's the first question. I was raised by two neurotic, overprotective, middle-class Jewish parents in Manhattan. And that wouldn't be traumatic to most people, but for some reason it traumatized me. 
Well, first of all, if I can, <laughs> if I can quibble with your phrasing, yes, there's no such thing as overprotective. That doesn't exist. You can protect people or not protect them. Overprotective means controlling. That's what it means. There we go. I think we should write a letter to my dad. You could co-sign it for me, doctor. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so overprotective, that may speak of the parent's motivation that I'm really wanting to make sure that my kid has a good life, but it doesn't speak to the child's experience. The child's experience is being overtly controlled controlled so that their own personality and their own true self has to be suppressed. Now that's traumatic. Right. You know, in itself. So because we need to be accepted and allowed to be who we are, as soon as we're controlled by people more powerful than we are, that's the essence of trauma. Right. And this is, I'm, I'm not blaming the parents, by the way. I mean, I, I, I let's just blame my parents. parents. Let's blame them for a second, doctor. Okay. Just a little bit. Okay. Well, let's have a blame fest. Okay. okay yeah. Thank you. That's all your parents. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to indulge. Yes. Uh, happy to do a blast. Yes. But, but it's not the parents' motivation that that's an issue It's what is the child's experience? So what's the experience of being controlled? What's that like? You know? I love when you use that phrase, finding your truest self, because that's the whole purpose of recovery. And that's the whole purpose of, of getting better. Because if you're not after that aim, what, what are you after, right? Having some peace in your own skin. Now, even that word recovery, if you, if you look at that word recovery, I used to be an English teacher, you know, before I became a doctor. Um, I thought teaching English was way too stressful. I said, why don't I go to medical school? And yeah, school? right. So I pay attention to language. So when you recovery, what does it mean to recover something? To get it back. To get it back, find it, right? Well, what is it that people find? What do they find? I'm asking you what, do you, what do you get back when you recover? What do you find? I found who I was. That's the whole point. You recover yourself. You find yourself. And the, the original pain, the original trauma, always has to do, one way or another, with having disconnected from yourself. The recovery really is a finding of yourself. It's a reconnection. That's such a beautiful idea. One of the more controversial things, I think, I've read and discussed and, and, and heard about with you is uh, your, when you talk about your own addicted background and, and, and I use, and, and I think it's interesting because your definition, as, as we said a second ago, that uh, addiction is any repeated behavior, substance related or not, in which a person feels compelled to persist regardless of its negative impact on his life and the lives of others. And, and your story was involving this compulsivity to buy classical CDs. And I enjoyed the story because it was so crazy uh, that you were, uh, you know, you're a family practitioner and there was a woman giving birth and you found yourself at the record store instead of in the hospital, right? Right. I didn't find myself. I drove myself to the record <laughs> store. Right. Uh, right. I, I left my patient in labor to get a CD. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So now people say, how can you compare this to the heroin addiction of your benighted hiv ridden patients and you know it's a fair question the differences are obvious though it's the similarities that are that are interesting so my definition addiction is any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in and therefore craves but suffers negative consequences in the long term and doesn't give up despite the negative consequences any behavior so that that could have to do with drugs obviously and often does alcohol, nicotine, heroin, crystal meth, whatever, 
but it could also be sex or gambling or shopping or eating, as I said before, or work. Now, the issue is not the behavior. The issue is the internal relationship to it. So in that phase when I was compulsively buying compact discs, literally I had, it's almost like I had to get my next fix. I had to leave the hospital to get this music, thinking I'll make it back in time, but I didn't. Or, and I'd lie to my wife about it. Like any addict, I would lie mercilessly and, and compulsively. And even after my wife said to me, just, if you need to buy it, buy it, but don't lie to me about it, I still kept lying about it. And one, one day I spent five or $6,000 on music. Well, you, you tell me that's not an addiction. So the, the, the addiction process looks the same or externally it looks different, but the internal dynamics are the same, and whether it's compact disc buying or whether it's heroin. Now, the consequences, ramifications, right. Right. That, that's, that's, told, that's totally different. But the internal dynamics of compulsion, of temporary relief, of, of, of negative consequences, and we're not stopping, the lying, the cheating, the shame, that's the same across all addictions. Right. And I, and let me ask you, when, when, how did you get out of the compulsive lying and shopping? How'd you get out of it? Well, you know, every book I write is as much for myself as it is for the reader. So writing the book, Hungry Ghosts, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, was in itself a therapeutic process for me because I really had to look at myself. And um, in, in a sense, writing the book really helped me overcome it. Right, because you could see yourself. I could really see myself now and really get the full impact. Now, I, it's not that I don't love classical music anymore. Of course I do, but I don't have any urge whatsoever to go out and binge shop or even shop for it anymore, you know? So the, I wasn't, you have to understand, I wasn't addicted to the music. I just love the music. I was addicted to the shopping for the music. No, I get it. I, I get it. It yeah. feels so good to be able to buy something and the power and the relief and and the it it infuses. I, I'm like that with Amazon. I could buy a shirt on Amazon and get that feeling, like all of a sudden yeah. I'm taken care of. You know what I mean? Exactly. And 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 then, no sooner would I leave the store, thinking that not my collection is complete, and then ten minutes later I'm driving back. <laughs> There's one CD I didn't get. Right. You know. Totally. Typical addictive behavior. Totally. And then you worked in the, in the downtown east side of Vancouver, you know, North America's worst uh, drug concentration. And did you talk to the addicts there about your compulsivity to buy Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart and all that? But funny thing I did, no, 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 you have to understand, my patients were often street dwellers or they just come off the street to live in some single room occupancy hotel, you know, terrible, you know, poor outside the law, the, the, the addictions are illegal. They have some of them have HIV, mental illness, all kinds of complications, abscesses of their bodies, their joints because of the injection of the drugs. And I would tell them about myself and they, and, and, and the funny thing is they never, they never batted an eyelash. They said, hey doc, you're just like the rest of us, aren't you? Right, <laughs> totally. And said, yeah, I am just, you know, now, again, I'm not minimizing the differences. I was a respectable, I should say respectable, respected. <laughs> yes, respectable and respected. Well, I don't know about respectable, but respected, okay? Uh, and a middle-class doctor at a nice home, all that kind of stuff, you know? And they lived very 
challenged existences on the margins of society. So uh, again, I'm not minimizing the differences, but it's the similarities that are interesting. Totally. And, and, and what's the approach? Because I, I, I've been, you know, I, I read in the realm of hungry ghosts. It's beautifully written an incredible book. I cannot recommend it enough. My wife was always reading me passages from uh, scattered and hold on to your kids. Cause we're trying to be less scattered and to hold on to our children better. Um, I've watched you talk to some amazing people online, like that Tim Ferriss interview was incredible. I've seen you do TED Talks. What's the difference when you're talking to a Tim Ferriss type versus talking to a drug addict? There's no difference. Okay. I'm just interacting with a human being and and uh, wanting to be as present as I can be, just like I'm talking to you right now, you know? So, th so I, I don't... When I see a drug addict, when I am on my game and when I'm grounded myself, I'm not seeing an addict. I'm, I'm just seeing like, nobody is an addict and it, because the dysfunction doesn't define anybody. So if I, if, if I could be the ruler of the language, I would outlaw the word addict. And I would say, every time you wanted to say addict, you had to say, here's a human being who's been in so much pain that they found relief in this particular substance or behavior. That's all you'd have to say every time you wanted to use the word addict. Now that would change the conversation, wouldn't it? So therefore, when I'm when I'm talking with an addict, with a person, why should I see them as any different as I see Tim Ferriss? Now, what what is the problem with the word addict? Do you think it stigmatizes people? It pigeonholes them? Like, why don't you like it? Well, it. I mean, it it describes something, doesn't it? You know, it, it tells me something. But when you say I am an addict, yeah, is that all you are? No, of course not. But it's like, for some reason, I mean, I define myself as an addict. And I think it reminds me of, of the way you talk about the stupid friend. You know, it, it's some kind of negative self-talk. It's also a defining quality. It's a badge of courage. I, I, why do you think, I mean, I think addicts basically define themselves as addicts because of all the shit they've been through and because their take on the world is different because of what they might have survived or recovered. Why do you think the word addict is, uh, is used at all? Well, listen, it depends who's using it, first of all. If you stand up in front of a meeting and you say, my name is Dave and I'm an alcoholic or I'm a, or I'm a heroin addict, you're, it's a badge of courage. It's, it's an acknowledgement that you're willing to be vulnerable, that you're willing to say how you've behaved uh, precisely because you don't, gonna, you're not gonna, you don't wanna behave that way anymore. So I, I don't really object to it in that sense. In fact, it's a, it's a healthy, necessary self-acknowledgement, you know? But often the word, used, the word addict is used pejoratively. He's so-and-so is an addict, you know? And in the first sense, it's a positive act, but I just be careful about identifying with it. You know, because they, you, nobody is an addict. That's not who they are. The addictive, the addictive behavior was an aspect of their coping with the pain in their lives, but it's not who they ever were. So while there is a positive um, resonance to acknowledging that and, and to standing up publicly and saying it, at the same time, don't identify with it. It's not who you are. It's not who anybody is. And certainly in a pejorative sense, that it's often used, it's simply harmful and, and damaging to people.
I think it's one of those things that within the addict community, it means something different than outside of it. I think that's right. Um, one of my favorite things about having you on the show in general is that you are this renowned healer and like, and, and the idea of having, you know, troubled people, you know, I'm going to use the word addicts, find their truest self, find peace, uh, is such a brilliant and, and generous and just lovely thing to be doing. But how do you do it? Like we can read about it. We can talk about it. When you work with somebody who's struggling, what, what are the tech, some of the techniques that you might use to help them feel better? Because I think a lot of our audience is actually struggling right now and would love to hear some, uh, some good plans. You may not have noticed it, but we've already done it. The first thing I asked you was, what did the heroin do for you? Right. You said, you said it gave you a sense of inner peace or something like that you said, right? Sure. And then I would say to you, listen, Dave, inner peace, wonderful. Who doesn't want that? I want it too. We all want it. Join the club. You're a human being. You know? And uh, secondly, then I would ask, well, where did you lose that inner peace? So all of a sudden, the, um, and then you said, you had what you called overprotective parents, but really what you were telling me about is that you were controlled as a child in a way that made you lose yourself. That's suffering. That's the pain. And so all of a sudden, the person I was, I'm talking to, if I do this right, they realize it's not their fault and there's nothing to be ashamed of. But actually, there's a pain underneath their behavior that if you can heal the pain, the behavior needs, doesn't need to hang around anymore. Rather than you got this genetic disease and you got, you know, or even worse, you're stupid and you're making bad decisions. Right, right. And, and that, I love your, your take on the quote-unquote stupid friend, the negative self-talk that might have served you. Can you explain that a little to our audience? Well, everybody who's addicted um, has a lot of shame. And now people think they're ashamed because they're addicts. But I have the, I think it's the other way around. They're addicts because they're so ashamed. You know, the shame came before the addiction. And the shame is really based on separation and isolation and then being rejected, not being accepted for who you are. Now, when children are traumatized, whether it's through abuse, like sexual, and by the way, as I've often said, in the downtown east side where I worked all those years, there wasn't a single female patient I had who had not been sexually abused. Right. One. And, and many of the men, either sexually or physically or otherwise, emotionally abused, neglected, and so on. Now, when a child is mistreated, they can make two assumptions. Like, let's say, just come back to your case, Dave. You, we didn't talk about abuse. I don't know if there was any or not, but let's just talk about the over-controlling. It felt back to you, right? The question is, you could make two assumptions. I'm being, I'm being treated this way by my parents because they're incompetent and they don't love me. I'm talking about the two-year-old, the three-year-old. Or I can make the assumption that there's something wrong with me, that I'm flawed, which is the safer assumption for the child. That, that you're flawed. Because the world stacked against you is, a, is too terrifying a thing to, to, to intake in as a child. Exactly. So that assumption that I'm flawed becomes your friend. It protects you against that terror. When I call it a stupid friend, it's because it doesn't learn anything. It doesn't realize that it's not needed anymore. So 40 years later, it's still telling you that you're flawed. Right. No, I, I, get, I get those stupid friend flashes on a daily basis. And, and what you say in the book 
or what I've read you say is, is just to notice it, to, to acknowledge it, to not suppress it because you can't suppress it. You can just notice it. So it lives kind of side by side with you. You can suppress it, but then you're going to end up as president of the United States, like a stable genius. You know? <laughs> and that guy has got so little self-concept. He suppressed that stupid fence so much that he has to compensate for it by being grandiose. I mean, who would call themselves a stable genius? Nobody who's stable would call themselves stable, and nobody who's a genius would call themselves a genius. <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's somebody who suspects both their intelligence and their groundedness that would assert that about themselves. So um, if you don't acknowledge it, you end up suppressing it, then you end up compensating for it in some very um, destructive ways. Right. And, and at, the, at the root of all of your work, I seem to always find trauma. And I feel very much like you've brought trauma back to the conversation and nobody can stop talking about trauma. Is there, is, does anyone not experience trauma? Well, first of all, I don't want to claim that, I, that I, I brought it back to the conversation. It's true that I'm in the realm of addiction, I think my work has been fairly effective and not not enough not effective enough as far as i'm concerned but to some degree but in terms of talking about trauma it's really it's become part of the zeitgeist so there's dr bessel van der kolk and his best-selling book the body keeps the score new york times bestseller for years now dr bruce perry his book um the boy was raised as a dog and his most recent book with oprah what happened here so um peter levine um great trauma uh, psychologist, his book, Waking the Tiger. So it's become part of the zeitgeist now in the last couple of decades. That's true. And I've helped to contribute to that, but I'm far from unique in it. Now, uh, having made that the mural, I've forgotten what your question was. The question was, does anyone not suffer trauma? <clears throat> well, if you look at the meaning of the word trauma, it originates from a Greek word for wound. Trauma has to be is to suffer a wound. Is there anybody in this culture who goes up without suffering significant wounds? Some, but not very many. Now, there's a spectrum of trauma. So some people are much more wounded than others, obviously. But in the psychological sense, in this culture, which is what I call a toxic culture, where children's needs are not by and large understood, let alone met, very few escape some degree of wounding. And we see that in economic life and political life in the culture, certainly in mental, in physical health and mental health. You know, like if you, if you look at the United States, it's only like 50% of adults are at least on one medication. Can you believe that? Half the population is medicated for something. And, um, I know I'm sorry, about 70% is on one, on, on at least on medication and 50% are on uh, more than one medication. So, you know, I may have the figures wrong. I hear you in that range. Well, well, what is that about? Is it about is it about money? It's about trauma. Okay. Uh, like yes, it is about money. There's a lot of profits to be made, but primarily what it's about is that whether it comes to chronic physical illness or or um, like look, let's look at the, the epidemic of diabetes. Right? It's it's rising like crazy in the states. Why is there diabetes? people eating junk food and too much of it and because they're stressed 
know, why are people eating junk food? Because it's addictive. It soothes the brain because they're so stressed. So you might say diabetes, diabetes is like a physical problem. It is, but it, it comes from a psychological issue of too much stress in people's lives and, and their difficulty handling that stress, which goes back to childhood trauma again. Right. Oh, in this society, it, it's very common to find trauma if you know how to, if your eyes are open. If your eyes, your eyes are not open, and unfortunately, most physicians' eyes are not open, then you don't see it. Even though it's staring you, it's screaming at you, but you don't hear it, and it's glaring at you, and you don't see it. Like, like I don't know what your experience was, but in, uh, how, how, how many years were you, did you have your own addiction? Uh, 12, 14, 12 to 14 years. Okay. In those 12, 14? We'll say 13. <laughs> we'll say 13. Lucky 13. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let, let's, let me ask you this. How many, you must have seen a lot of care providers, psychologists, social workers, doctors, I don't know, I imagine you, counselors, drug, drug counselors. How many times were you asked, why the pain? Not that many. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't as many times as you would imagine, you know? No, I would imagine it'd be almost no right. none. Right. So is what I would imagine, given the way the system is, you know? So what I'm saying is that even though every addicted person comes out of trauma, they're rarely asked about it. It's all about the behavior, how to stop using, or, you know, but it's not about what's driving it. And by the way, I know when I give this talk, every once in a while, somebody will say, well, Doc, I had a perfectly happy childhood and I still became an addict. And usually it takes me two minutes to break through that one. <laughs> so right. I, uh, I, I, I issue what I call the happy childhood challenge. Let me just ask you questions for three minutes and let's see, let's see how happy you think you were after that three minutes and it never fails. So, you know, even that myth of the happy childhood is a defense against the pain. Is what it is. Right. And, and I love that diabetes as its own uh, soothing, you know, seeking the same thing that the drug addict seeks. It's never really talked about like that at all. There was this book, um, I think it was called Salt, Sugar, and Fat by, by American Journal. It's the best selling book a couple of years ago <clears throat> that showed that the food companies deliberately conspired to find what they call the sweet spot, mm. uh, the spot in the brain. Were the, the, the exact combination of sugar, salt, and fat that would trigger the brain's dopamine and endorphin apparatus, the same thing that drug addicts are after. Wow. These companies are drug pushers, and they kill a lot more people than, than drug pushers do. Right, because it's like, at, I mean, I've been off of heroin and, and pills and marijuana for six years, and yet at night, I, I can eat, you know, ice cream, cereal with chocolate syrup, cookies and i and it serves exactly the same purpose of of anesthetizing my brain making me feel soothed making me think that everything is okay um where's ben and jerry's on your list of uh of people who are, are, are destroying our society doctor is ben and jerry's on the bad list well so uh no actually ben cohen is on my good list because um <laughs> because he gave a he gave an interview to the New York Times a couple of years ago. I quote him in my new book, and he talks about how the corporations have taken over our country. Yeah. And that's not a good, you know. So he's a, he's a wealthy man with a social conscience. There's nothing wrong with ice cream. Well, it, like, like, there's nothing wrong with heroin. You know, I worked in palliative care, looking after terminal people. I used fentanyl. 
I used I used the morphine. I couldn't use heroin because that was illegal. But I used stuff close to it. Thank God. Otherwise, people would die in suffering. There's nothing with ice cream. What an enjoyable thing it is. Yes. It's not the thing. It's one's relationship to it. So there's no conspiracy when it comes to making ice cream. Now, making junk foods and and then putting sugar into cereal, kids, childhood's breakfast. That's that's something else. That's conspiratorial because you're you're loading child up with an addictive, fucked up substance in the morning and saying it's part of the healthy breakfast. You deliberately um, you're deliberately hooking people into addictions that are that are going to kill them. Yeah. Now, one of your great top and by the way, do you ever get bored talking about addiction and trauma and ADD and all this stuff? Do you ever like I'm tired of talking about this and you want to talk about something else? Um, only, uh, if I overdo it, because I can, I can get addicted to work. I can get addicted to talking. I mean, who, who doesn't like attention, you know, and, uh, it feeds the ego and my ego hasn't completely absconded yet. I hate to tell you, you know, so I can get sometimes a bit too hooked on it and they get over, then I overdo it and that's not good for me or my marriage. Um, right. but other than that, but, but other than that, I don't, because I'm really passionate about what I consider to be the truth. And that's in any realm. I just think truth is what people need. It's what humanity needs. In fact, what humanity is built for. And, um, so I, I don't get tired of speaking the truth. No, I don't. Let me ask you this. Cause you just said something that's very interesting to me because the fame thing, the, the endorphins that we receive from the attention you know, my level of attention is less than yours, but I get high off of my dopey attention. How do you know when it's too much? Well, for one thing, I married my lie detector 52 years ago. We just had a 52nd wedding anniversary. Mazel tov. So, um, thank you. <laughs> so, I don't get away with much in this film. <laughs> you, know, you know what, my, my my complaint, I don't, you know, there's the classic cartoon of the guy sitting in the bar at two in the morning and the He's the last guy left, he's nursing his last drink, and the bartender is wiping the counter, looking bored, and, and the guy says, my problem is that my wife doesn't understand me, you know? And uh, my version of that is that I'm sitting in the bar at three in the morning, nursing my last drink, and I'm saying, my problem is that my wife understands me. <laughs> too, too well. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so for one thing, I'm in this relationship. That if I want to stay in that relationship, I need to be in integrity, you know? So that's a big incentive. But secondly, uh, look, I'm old enough to know the impact of, 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 of going for that external hit and giving up the true self. So when I go for the fame and I, you know, and, 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 and try to live off the fumes of that rather than what my authentic self needs, I create suffering for myself. I, I, I know that now, you know? So. It's not such an issue for me. No, I get it. I get, I get exactly what you mean. I want to talk about a couple more things before we, I leave you, but I'm very, very excited that you came on. It's wonderful to talk to you. Uh, ADD, okay? Like, how do you relate ADD and addiction? Are they related? Well, they all begin with the three and three letters, don't they? Yes, but besides that, I, I knew that, doctor. Tell me, some, tell me something I don't know, doctor. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I will. Okay. First of all, they're all rooted in trauma, okay? So the tuning out, the absent-mindedness is not a disease. It's a coping mechanism. When a young child is stressed, like I was in my infancy or you might have been in yours, 
then what the brain does, you can't escape and you can't fight back. So what you do is you tune out to protect yourself. Then that tuning out is programmed into your brain. That's what ADD is. So like, like addiction, ADD starts off with childhood stress. Number one. Number two, how do you treat people with ADD? If you're going to treat them medically, you give them stimulant drugs like Ritalin or Adderall, which elevate the level of dopamine, which is an important chemical neurotransmitter, chemical messenger in the brain that helps us be motivated and give us incentive, a sense of being vital, a sense of being alive, a sense of being present. That's an important brain chemical without which life is impossible. Now, the, the most significant neurotransmitter in all addictions is dopamine. So when I was shopping for compact discs, mm. I wasn't addicted to discs. The gambler is not addicted to the money. The sex addict is not addicted to the sex. They're addicted to the hit of dopamine they get right. when, they, when they engage in those behaviors. So both ADD and addictions are based on a dopamine dysfunction, which starts in childhood. So of course, there's a significant relationship and something like many gambling addicts will have ADD, many alcoholics will have ADD. In one study, 40% of adult alcoholic males met the criteria for ADD. Um, about 30% of stimulant addicts or a lot of sex addicts will have ADD because they're after that dopamine, which shoes and calms their brain temporarily. Now, let me ask you something. I, I, I mean, when I was a kid, I went to a public school in Manhattan that was supposed to be like the cream of the crop of, of gifted youngsters, you know? And I didn't do well, okay? And, uh, and nobody diagnosed me with ADD, but my mother was like, I think he has ADD. And all I took it as was I, I was stupid. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 she said he has a learning disability and I took it personally and I didn't think that I could be treated. Now, when I started doing drugs, I didn't do uppers. I didn't do amphetamines. I mean, I did a little bit of amphetamines. I did a little bit of Coke, but I really loved heroin, pot, and benzos. Like, how does that work, the chemistry between the dopamine, the ADD, and the downer? Well, first of all, this is a well-known phenomenon, but if you're a heroin addict and you even start thinking about your next hit, what do you think happens in your brain? You get a huge dopamine inflow. Right. Just by thinking about it. So you don't necessarily have to take a dopamine-enhancing drug to get the dopamine hit. You're getting it just even by engaging in the behavior. And a lot of the, when you talk to heroin addicts, <clears throat> and I don't know if this is your experience or not, Dave, but it's not just about the effect of the drug. It's also about the ritual sure. and the seek. That's all about dopamine. It all builds. The dopamine builds as you go out to Brooklyn and the guy answers the phone and you know that you can get it. And then you have your needle and all of that stuff. It's all like multiple triggering the dopamine is what you're saying. That's exactly right. And the same thing happens with porn, porn addicts. And believe me, when I was showing for contact like this, that's what happened to me. Like the dopamine would flow as soon as I was just thinking about it. When I get to the store, my ADD disappears. I'm totally present. I'm focused. I remember everything. I could almost tell you how I wonder what circumstances about all the discs on my shelf because I was so present. Right. Because the, the activity itself triggered that dopamine flow. So... You didn't escape the dopamine, you just got it through different means. So why, why is ADD treated with uh, Adderall and Ritalin? Like, what does that do? How does, how does the amphetamine style effect uh, deal with it? Well, 
ADD is very much a motivation problem. So you're a gifted kid and you didn't do well, but probably because you weren't that interested in a lot of stuff they made you learn. But let me ask you this, did you have trouble focusing when you were really excited about something? No. Well, that's the whole point because that's get the dopamine flowing. Right. So you didn't have, ADD is really a motivation problem. Ah. It's a motivation problem. So when a kid gets Adderall, they get up for uh, something so they can learn. Yeah, it gives them that, it calms their brains, they can focus there. It gives them that motivation is mostly what it is. Yeah, that's amazing. That's my, by the way, although I'm not against the use of medications, uh, it's not my first choice when it comes to dealing with kids. That's a whole other subject. But again, I'm not, I, I, I prescribed it, I've taken it myself. But it's a much larger issue than trying to change the kids' brains because what you really want to do with an ADD child or any child is help them develop in healthy ways. The medications do nothing to promote development. They just deal with the symptom temporarily. Right. That may be a good thing in some situations. In a rare situation, it might even be absolutely necessary. But it's never the first or the only answer. Not if we're doing it right. And unfortunately, in this culture, we're so drug-oriented that all these kids are medicated and nobody's paying attention to the larger issues that are driving their dysfunction. Right. Now, why? when did you take Adderall and how long did you take it for? I, wrote, I certainly took it when I wrote, I, I took Dexedrine. Um, I took it when I wrote Scattered Minds for sure. Um, and I, I took it, uh, so my, I didn't have, for my most recent book, I didn't take it. In fact, when I tried to, I got nothing but anxiety and side effects. So I've grown out of it, you know, but I, I, I took it when I wrote some or all of my previous books, not or three of my previous books. Yeah. Was it helpful? Was it like fuel? It, it, was, it, 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 it was helpful. It helped me focus and, um, and stay present. Uh, now, interestingly enough, with this most recent book, I was at my computer six to 12 hours a day. I didn't need any at all. I didn't need anything. You know, uh, I, I've, I've developed past that point because it's a matter of development. But um, it also, but I tell you, it also had a negative role in my life. It made me more driven. It made me more of a compulsive. It made me more aggressive and hostile, created problems in my personal relationships. So, it, you know, it's like, like with any medication, you get potential benefits, but you also get potential harms. Totally. I, I'm totally tempted. Like I'm trying to, I'm writing, I'm working on this book and I'm having a hard time making it happen. And, and you know, I'm not like, here, tell me, what are you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, look, what I say to people about medications is if you take it intentionally, not to feel better or, or you know, but because you, you're trying to focus, you know, you know, and, and you're taking it as prescribed. There are two possibilities. Either it works or it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, you stop it. There are two further possibilities. Either there are side effects or there aren't any side effects. If there's side effects you don't like, you stop it. But there's not much to be lost. If you've got a project like a book and you really can't get down to it, well, first of all, you have to ask yourself before you get to the medication, in how many directions are you splitting your life? How much multitasking are you doing? How much, because if you want to write, I don't know if you know uh, the German poet, Rainer Maria Rilke, he wrote this book called Letters to a Young Poet back about a century ago. and. Uh, he says to this young poet who turns to him for advice, he says, if you want to write, if that's what your biggest passion is, you have to organize your life around it. 
Right. So you have to ask yourself, David, I mean, how is this book really important to me? Then what do I need to give up to create space in my life? So you're not going to give up your personal issue with your spouse. You're not going to give up your care and contact with your children. But you're going to have to ask yourself, what are some things I need to give up? Because you can't do it all. Right. I'm yeah, trying yeah. to do too many things at once and I'm cramming the writing into like writing on uh, the Long Island Railroad going down to the city. It's like, it's bullshit. I hear what you're saying, doctor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, then on top of that, if you have difficulty sitting still to write, even if though you created the space for it, if you need that, then you can try the medication as long as you take it just for when you're writing, not all the time. And uh, as long as you're monitoring yourself for side effects, uh, there's no harm done. But don't rely on the medication to do it for you. Right. The medication isn't going to write my incredible treatise, which is the working title is The Last Jewish Waiter, How I Got Sober at Katz's Deli. Sorry, what's the subtitle? How I Got, How I got Off of Heroin at Katz's Deli. What a great title. Thank you. The, the Last Jewish Waiter is what a great title that is. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. The, the, the last thing I want to talk to you about that I'm just fascinated with is you talked about you're touring the book in the realm of Hungry Ghost, Close Encounter with Addiction, and everyone's asking you about psychedelics, and everyone's asking you about ayahuasca, and you're like, this is so yeah. annoying because I didn't know about it, but now you do, and you're, you're, you're partaking in these ayahuasca ceremonies, right? Yeah, well, I haven't for a while, but I have. In fact, I used to lead retreats with ayahuasca, and... Uh... In my new book, there's a chapter on psychedelic healing, and uh, for a good reason, because for the last 12 years, I've worked with psychedelics, and it's really impressive what, in the right context, they can do. And um, the first time I did ayahuasca, about 12 years ago now, I got it right away. I, I, I got why people were asking me, because in a couple of ceremonies, I got in touch with this deep love, open-heartedness that I was missing all my life. Uh, because I closed it down too early because my heart was so hurt as an infant, I shut it down, you know, and that showed up in my relationships and everywhere else. And so I got the beauty of what's available to us. I also got all the angst and the terror and the trauma that I was carrying. So you can get some very clear visions. I have to emphasize in the right context. Right. With the right guide. But before you say anything else, doctor, tell us about the first time you took ayahuasca. Tell us the story. Well, that's the story is, is that I, I, people kept asking, what do you know about it? And <laughs> have you seen uh, the, the life of Brian, the Monty Python? Of course. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, you know, so everybody's hosannahing and, 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 and worshiping Brian as the Messiah. Yes. And he keeps saying he's not the Messiah, you know? So <laughs> if we find, there's a great scene where he says to his followers, they, they can't stand it anymore. He says, Okay, I am the Messiah. Now fuck off. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and they say, how shall we fuck off, my love? <laughs> and I was kind of feeling that way with, the, okay, fuck off with you ayahuasca questions already. I just read a book about addiction and everything I've learned and I've spent poured my life, heart, soul into it. That you keep asking about the one thing I don't know anything about, you know. And then somebody said, do you know you could actually do it here in Nakur? I didn't know that. I thought you'd have to go to Peru. You know, because there was a shaman who came up here. And so I took part in this ceremony and in this tent with this dozens of people and the shamans poured a drink and about half an hour later, they start singing and his incredible voices. 
and there's a little baby in the room. The mom is there with the dad. The the dad is taking ayahuasca, and the baby is there with the mom. And the baby starts whimpering and going and cooing and crying. And my heart just opens and tears of love start flowing down my cheeks. And I just got it. How it shut down my heart such a long time ago. So that was my first experience. And what, so, do, what, does, what does the practitioner do? The shaman, you mean? Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. In the traditional ways, and this, from what I experienced, wasn't a traditional way. But in the traditional ways, the, the shamans who are highly trained and highly experienced, they chant in their language. And these chants are healing chants. And they speak to the energies in your body. So they're working on your energies. And they'll chant to the whole group sometimes, but sometimes to individuals based on what the person needs. So that's what they do. What they don't do, and this is where I come in, is because I, I thought to myself, okay, this is very nice, but in the Amazon where this modality was developed, it wasn't a question of a bunch of strangers coming together for one night. It was a community that knew each other. Right. And they would see each other, they support each other, and the shaman would know them. So can we create at least temporarily a community? So then I started leading these retreats where people would come for a week, and before we had ceremony, I would help them identify their intentions, their issues, their problems. After the ceremony, we would help them interpret and integrate what the ceremony showed them, what the visions they had, what the experiences they had. So what, what it's developed since in the last increasingly in the last decade or more is people being trained uh, in psychedelic therapy where it's not just about you take the substance it's about how to work with the person under the influence of the substance and before and afterwards and that's a big movement right now and michael pollan's book uh, how to change your mind of course is a big game changer dr monte thank you it was a wonderful conversation and i really appreciate you taking the time for us Thank you, Hanan. I'll show up at your door at Katz's, believe me, next time in New York. Just tell me, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll be waiting with bated breath, doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye -bye. You too. Bye. So there he was, your hero, Dr. Gabor Mate. Amazing. Hungarian, Canadian, and Jewish all at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I have to say, Linda was like, if I was Rocky, Linda was Mickey or Apollo Creed coaching me on my path, drilling me on, on Gabor and, and, and ideas that Gabor had. Yeah. Right? Well, I was overwhelming, I think, cause I, he really is, um, my mentor and not even just about like, obviously well, in he's the, your and, inspiration. He's not your mentor, a mentor well, you'd interact with. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think you can have a mentor that you don't know. You don't think that somebody can mentor you through their words mm, and through reading their, I don't know. To reading all of their, well, what I was going to say, why I feel like he has mentored me in his words and in his writing and in his thinking is because I've read every single one of his books. I've attended his online um, lectures. I've watched all his, I mean, all his YouTube videos. Like I'm, so I feel like I've been mentored by him through by his work. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you on that, but whatever. Um, I think I might've been challenging for Dave in a way because Gabor has also Everything kind of overlaps with him, which is what's very cool. So obviously in the realm of Hungry Ghosts, um, I read, and that's like the Bible. And I and so Dave was really intrigued and interested in, in that. But then he also wrote a parenting book. He wrote a book ADD. about uh, the, uh, Scattered, which is a book about ADD. But it all, 
there's a lot of overlap in all of his in all of his writing. But I was like, well, Dave, talk about this and this and this. And he's like, whoa, this is this is a lot of information. Well, the <laughs> fucked up thing is that for the past five years, it's been one Gabor book after the next, and I'm bombarded with Gabor information from yeah. you constantly. So I knew how important a guest he was, and I like really like went to work trying to like bone up on Gabor mm. and I felt good about it. And I thought he was a really gracious, sweet guest and super, like, I think he had fun as, he's as a good a, teacher. He's a good teach, like a natural born teacher. But the other, one other thing I wanted to mention, like we said, you know, in the realms, uh, scattered, which is an ADD book. There's, um, uh, a, a, a book regarding parenting, why parents should be like the primary, people guiding your kids and not their, their peers. Um, but he also is like the godfather in a lot of ways of trauma right? and, and trauma and addiction are, are so overlapped. And so I thought it was cool that you got into that with him. Yeah. The trauma piece. And, and he was, I just thought he was more accessible than I expected him to yeah, be. He was. And he was definitely like, he didn't know Dopey from fucking nothing, you know, <laughs> but he he treated me really respectfully sure. and he was engaged with me. And uh, and I like that he recognized the trauma of growing up in a controlling middle class Jewish household. I, I like that. I, I felt very uh, validated. Well, you know, his whole point and, and or one of his points that I love is that everybody has a different definition of trauma. Right. Right. So what's traumatic for you might not be traumatic for me. What might be a trigger for me to to turn to substances might be different for somebody else. Well, don't you think it's interesting that I went from this controlling traumatic childhood to this controlling relationship with you? Don't you think that's Do an interesting? you inter feel that I'm. Oh, are you kidding? Like you're being re-traumatized. I, I think by me? I think it's a daily dose. <laughs> wow. Okay. A da daily dose of. We need to get Gabar on the phone. I think we need uh we need better help. And your therapist and better help. Let's get all your tool, all your, all my all your resources, all my mentor, all yeah, my mentors, all your mentors, and uh, and and we'll work out this trauma. No, I just think isn't it interesting though that like because you are a very controlling person. You really want to go? Are, you really want to go there? All right, I, bring I, it. I'm not bringing anything. I'm just saying like. It's just I, I, you know, in the beginning of the show, we discussed how <laughs> wow. you how you wanted to like puppet master the house via your COVID quarantine, and then well, let's turn, you know, let's let's put the spotlight on you. What? Why do you feel like you are drawn toward more controlling? I don't know. People? I mean, that's. I mean, like, I don't know. I think it's interesting. Like, I think it's just it's just one of those interesting phenomena. Yeah, so interesting. I think you are just incredibly beautiful and and so uh, effervescently charming and fun mm -hmm. that i didn't realize <laughs> the the bee's nest of uh of control that i was going to be under and then you know what the truth maybe is maybe you like being controlled maybe i do but i really think that being controlled by you is worth it okay well that's great that's what i think well you know um I, i'm not sure what to say I don't view myself as controlling. I come think on, I, Linda. I think come that on. I, I feel like you're I, like I wear the pants in our family. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think that I often have feedback that is important and needs come on, give me a break. It's like you, if somebody asked you. Are you? You just said you tried to be the the dictator of the house from your COVID bed. You need control. Just be honest right. for a so, second. But, but, this is an honest but podcast. Listen, what 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 I would what I would say is this. 
I also have uh, done my share of, I'm a therapist, I've done my share of therapy, and I know that we're, everybody's, everybody's strongest personality trait needs to be explored, right? Because it's never what it is. So I know that mm. my controlling, and I, we've talked about this, when I get really controlling, isn't it usually because I'm feeling super anxious? Right. Or, or like, or like, right. And you were sick. So you were super controlling. When people get really controlling, it's often because they feel very out of control. Right. If you don't feel out of control, do you feel like you need to control things? I don't understand the question. If you, if you don't feel like you're out of control, are you trying to control anything? No, you're just kind of like going through the motions. So is that why I'm so chill? Because I never feel particularly out of I control? Man, I don't think you know what the fuck's going on. What do you mean? You, you, you just ride it out. What, do you, what does that mean? What do you mean? I think that when you do feel anxious about stuff, you try to, you try to like control more. Right. Is what I'm trying to say. Right. And because You don't think I'm just super chill and I'm just going with the flow? You're not super chill. No? No. I have a kind of chill. I think you have it because of your history, like your addiction history and you have, you lived a certain kind of life. I think you have an easier time letting things fall apart than I do. Because you've had that, <laughs> okay. you've had that happen to you quite a bit in your adult life. I'm more comfortable with you're total, more, right, bedlam. You are. Yes. And I'm not. So I think when things get a little bit out of control, I get into a very controlling mode. And it's not because I'm just a controlling bitch. It's because I'm feeling uncomfortable. Right. Right. So this is the therapy. You know, this is like look and looking a little bit underneath. And I think you and I have gotten to a place, which is why we're a couple where you I think you kind of know that deep down. I know what that it's coming from a different kind of place. And I'm just this controlling. You know what? Definitely. Death. And I, I have to say that if I could be controlled by anyone in the world, Ugh. I would only want to be controlled okay. by you. Let's, 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 let's move forward. You should see Lynn right now. She's like wearing this, <laughs> she has this, this sweater that she wears when she goes for walks. It's very slick. It's like a skier sweater and she's got this nice green hat and she looks very beautiful. Thank you, Dave. You're welcome. Um, now you've got choices. And that's you being manipulative, by the way. How but so? Anyway, continue. I, you have two choices. Do you want to hear the fucked up dopey voicemail or do you want to hear the email about Todd? Wow. I mean, I'm going to have to, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to always go with Todd. How could I not? All right. So, and then we're going to do the fucked up dopey voicemail. We're going to do both. Um, this is an email I got last week and it just, I don't know. It, it really kind of blew me away. Anyway, I'll read it. Hi, Dave. I don't really have a story for you because... Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? No, you can read it. I don't really have a story for you because my story is incredibly boring and does not bring the dopey at all. But I still wanted to send you an email because you have been instrumental in me pursuing recovery. My life was never in shambles, but I was an absolute dab fiend. Do you know what dabs are? No. They're an extremely potent uh, marijuana THC thing. Do you want me to read you the Google definition Please, of dab? Please, yes. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> In slang, dab can be a highly concentrated marijuana extract, a type of hip-hop dance, or touching the ground with your foot while you ride a bicycle. Hmm. Doing any of these actions is called dabbing. And yes, you could feasibly do all three at once. We do not recommend it. What so, a, that, so that doesn't explain too much, but well, no dabs, dabs. It's like it's like a, a gooey, tarry concentrate of of THC 
that you burn with one of these crazy torches and you take in gigantic and it's stronger than it's like stronger con uh, con concentration than hash. Yeah, it's I mean, did you ever strong t THC? You never smoked keef. No, keef is like is it keef a powder? Keef, it's like when you know when you have really nice bud. The, it's crystals, the crystals, yeah. So you bounce the crystals off of it. They take the crystals and they run it through some kind of thing, and it becomes uh, shattered or dab. I bet you it's the same thing. Okay, that's probably what it is. Todd loved it. This guy loves it. Okay. Back to the story. I, I, I once smoked dabs at, at one of the guys from Katz's house, and when I walked home, I felt like I was tripping. Okay, but I was an absolute dab fiend consuming a hundred, hundreds of milligrams of THC in all sorts of situations that were putting me and people around me at serious risk. I was never open to the possibility of recovery, even though my entire family is full of addicts, some in recovery and some not, because I never thought it was for me. After all, no one can be addicted to, re to weed. Weed isn't a big problem, and even if it was a problem, it certainly isn't the kind of problem that someone needs to go into recovery for, right? So I just continued to live that way for years, even though I knew I had a problem, because I had nothing else to use to fix the empty black hole in the middle of my soul. I started listening to your podcast because I loved listening to you tell weed stories while I was stoned. Such mm. a funny idea. Mm -hmm. I went to college in the most beautiful city in the U.S., Ithaca, New York. Oh, wow. And I used to sit by Cascadilla Gorge or Cascadilla Gorge smoking joints watching the waterfall and listening to Dopey and thinking about how it was such a shame that I missed you and Todd by a couple of decades because we would have had such a great time getting high and listening to the Grateful Dead. But now I have to do it by myself because nobody my age knows who the hell Jerry Garcia is. Maybe it's a shame you guys missed me by a couple of decades because now they sell Bud at the Ithaca Farmer's Market. Anyway, I wanted to write you this long and very boring email because I wanted to tell you just how important you, Chris, and Todd have been in my recovery. Dopey was what got me in the door. And even though stoned me didn't realize he was being tricked at the time, you filled my head with so much recovery that as soon as I came to the realization that I was destroying my life and I needed to stop, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I'm pretty sure there's no other explanation as to why I now feel compelled to drive my ass over to sit in a room with a bunch of stoners and talk about how weed is the fucking best and how it's so great that we don't smoke it. <laughs> and I still do it, even though the entire time, the only thought in my head is, man, this conversation needs a joint. I still go home and don't smoke one. It's wild. The episodes with Todd are some of my favorites. I've listened to them all like three times. It was just so obvious, even after he'd only said like one sentence, that Todd was the ultimate stoner. The fact that in an email about how you owe his family two grand and it's like destroying your relationship. And then the thing he gets the most pissed about is the fact that the last time you visit him, you only brought up an eighth and literally writes the sentence. I wasn't going to say anything, but come on, man, really? <laughs> Todd wrote me this email complaining that I owed his parents $2,000 and in the middle of it, he complains that I only brought an eighth of bud. Um, <laughs> uh, which is so funny. Anyway, Very Todd. yeah, in this email, but about like a potential lawsuit with complete and total seriousness is just uh, absolute gold. You can't make that shit up. And I'm not sure if I can really tell you why, but there was something about listening to Todd on Dopey that I finally, for the first time, could hear clearly where I was headed and that I needed to make 
changes now if I don't want to end up with a much more serious problem in the future? Because it started with weed, but I can tell that's not where it was going to end, for me at least. Mm. And there was something about his story that finally made me realize that. And because of his story, I sit around and talk about how great weed is and how great it is that I don't smoke it and how inexplicably, for some reason, my life is getting better. I'm sad that he didn't get the chance to really experience this too. And I wanted to tell you how sorry I am that he's gone. But thank you, Dave, for everything that you do. The podcast is awesome, hilarious, and you're really out there changing people's lives. I know you've changed mine. Happy New Year's. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Peace and love, Joey G. In Chicago. Uh, I'm like feeling really emotional. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, that's hardcore. Well, when we listened to the Marin thing and I, I started talking about Todd, I almost broke down crying in the kitchen. I just love the idea that Todd Todd's story might have saved somebody. Right, right. Me too. Yeah. To the it, point where he, and I'm sure it's it, it's happened to others because you have a lot of listeners, but to the point where he wrote an email specifying that is like, it's beautiful. There's something very beautiful about that. And I also think it's interesting that... He really pointed out, I think, um, just how everyone is, especially now that weed is like legal everywhere. There's so many different variants. We talked about the COVID variant. There's so many different variants of weed. Well, variety, not variants, strains, well, not, strains. Or, but there's the there's the crystals and there's the this and right. there's that. So it's like people just say, "Well, it's just weed, man." It's like that's such a. Um, what am I trying to say? It's just—it's a—it's a slippery slope. It's such—it's becoming more and more of a slippery slope than like the joints. You know, everyone's smoking joints at Woodstock, where it's like you could have five and and still kind of hang out. I mean, now there's just so many different things going on that I appreciate the story for even that. You know, obviously for what he mentions about Todd, but also how he's sharing because he almost sounds like he shouldn't be saying anything because it's just weed. Like I right. feel like people always say, "Ah, oh, it's just weed," but like weed is a whole whole other level now or not weed but i guess thc and the the different the different consistencies and the way and how much you use how much you use and um so there's just that was a really powerful email on so many levels he's a good writer too I, i i had this conversation with this guy um that i'm friendly with and he uses weed um but he really monitors his usage and he even like to the point milligram of his usage and he has some device right it's some kind of like weed vape thing and if you hit it only lets you hit Mm -hmm. like 0.25 milligrams i like that so it's like really medicinal and like you know listen i was trained in harm reduction and i and i don't i'm very open to people having different ways of um managing their addiction issues and i don't i don't think abstinence i'm not we've talked about this that's i'm not like that's the only way and um but i do think that this story is really relevant because he's he's i never even heard of uh dabs dabs and like it sounds like it's and and you just meant i don't know if you it's you put it on the show or not but that you used it once and you felt like you were it was a combination of like tripping on acid and using heroin it was intense i mean come on like so that's it's significant it's like if we smoked weed right now like if we'd probably get very fucked up you know, okay, and, uh, that, and that's fine. But if you have an addiction history or well, tendencies. I can't. I don't. I don't feel comfortable with the idea of me. Like, 
I like was going to make the joke. Oh, I just bought myself one of these vape pens where I can get 0.25 milligrams yeah, no. to, to medicate my anxiety. <laughs> you can't. I just know that, that like I wouldn't be I wouldn't be satisfied with 0.25 milligrams. Right. Like, I That's would just a good want point. I would just want more. And and I'm very comfortable. And you'd find ways to maybe like maybe you'd like secretly adjust the speedometer odometer whatever to like yeah. be like oh look linda it's only at this well it, it, it's <laughs> it's like it's a serious thing that like i'm not fucking with it so thank you joey i wrote him back and he wrote me this very beautiful email back but that cool. just uh yeah just just the fact that that todd spoke to him like I don't know. It means a lot to me. I also love that he was like watching the sunset in Ithaca. And it's like, weird. Yeah, it's weird Because like, I went to Oswego and I also went to Oswego with Todd and me and Todd used to sit and watch the sunsets and we listened to lots of Grateful Dead and smoked a lot of weed. And like, so when he had that, it's funny that he was able to tap into Todd in such an accurate way. It yeah. kind of gave me, ch- I, I got a little teary eyed. It's also know? just the idea that, I mean, like I, I you know, whoever listens to the show, I don't really comprehend who's listening to it. And the fact that Joey is sitting at the falls and the yeah. gorges in Ithaca listening to me and Todd and Chris and you yeah. and whatever, it's like, it's, it's very meaningful. Yeah. So, so Joey, thank you. Thanks, Joey. I love your email. Joey gets a pair of socks. Send, oh, wow. Send pair of socks, jo- Joey. Joey, send in your fucking address so I can send you socks. <laughs> Dopey Nation, I know. A lot of you are waiting for beanies. Our house has become bedlam. I was injured. Linda had COVID. Shipping is is commencing this week. Don't worry. And on the same note, buy dopey merch. We have so many fucking. On the same note, buy derpy, dopey merch, but you're I'm not gonna, gonna get it. I'm gonna send it. Don't you don't <laughs> think I'm good about shipping? All right. Just 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 be patient with with how long you want it to come because it's gonna be a while. That's not true. You don't I'm, think so? No, there's gonna be a huge shipping. Uh, tomorrow New Year's resolution. Dave's going to get it out fast. I get it out fast. I, I do get it out pretty. Listen, if you're out there and you're listening and you're like, Dave didn't get it out fast to me, write me an email. Oh, okay. Don't, an email. don't DM me on any social media. Just write me an email because I lose track of all the messages. Write me. Well, you're going to give your write email me about it. And then I'll, I'll, oh, I'm DM so, Linda. cause I'm so controlling. You right. will get your shit. All right. All right. Wow. <laughs> like take, take, it, take it take it easy um all right so again i want to thank and welcome all of the the new listeners who supposedly came over from wtf i'll thank mark Marin for having me on his show even though we know he's not listening to this <laughs> thank dr gabor mate for gracing our little show with his presence and he was great um so so you know beautifully wise man and, and Andy Dick. Are you excited for Andy Dick next week? I'm very excited. And Dopey Nation, uh, send in emails, send in voicemails. Be a part of this community, right? That's what community is. It's being a part of it, right, Lynn? Yeah, agreed. You do? I do. And now we're going to have dinner. So what would you like for dinner, Lynn? Um, I think we're going to go with this weird Chinese. It's a Chinese slash Thai place. Um but it doesn't make either one great, but it's we, quick and cheap. It's quick and cheap. And we like that they make Chinese anti. So we're going to go with them. All right. Well, Linda, thank you so much for, for joining the, the show again. Yeah. Thanks. It was fun. And should the dopey nation be expecting to hear from you in the, in the near future? Um, absolutely. All right. Thank you. And stay strong dopey nation and fucking toodles for Chris.
I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad bad desires all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had